You're listening to MLB.com Extras, brought to you by MLB.tv. It's baseball everywhere. Welcome to MLB.com Extras Cardinals Edition. Mark Feinstein recently sat down with Cardinals Senior Vice President and General Manager John Mosellock. They talked about the 2017 Cardinals getting more athletic, the departure of Albert Pujols from St. Louis years ago, and the Cards' rivalry with the Cubs now that Chicago has won the World Series. Here's Mark. So you have one of the more interesting stories when it comes to how you broke into baseball. How did that come about for you? Well, I had a good friend who actually worked for the Yankees, um, but at the time, he works for the Yankees now, but currently was with the Colorado Rockies by the name of Jay Darnell, and um, he uh, he had contacted me and, and kind of twofold said they needed some help down there with the, the Rockies expansion team, and also he had a couple players that were interested in, in perhaps going fishing. And um, I grew up in Colorado and, and um, was connected to that, and so... He called me, and, and ultimately um, I ended up taking Bren Smith out and, and you know, had a nice relationship with him. But then that was really my first sort of, like, um, foot-in-the-door type of thing. And, um, you know, obviously it led to a, an amazing journey and, and one that, um, you know, when you think about timing and, and, and luck, it was there. So your first jobs at the Rockies, you were batting practice pitcher? Is that or- I did throw batting practice. I, I helped out in the video room. Uh, Bob Gebhardt hired me, and um, you know worked in a variety of different different roles for that organization. And that's ultimately where I met Walt Jockety. And then uh, when Walt got the GM job here in St. Louis, he took me with him. What What did you learn most from those early days with the Rockies that helped you as you made your way through your career? When I think back to those times, you know, my, my one of the things I that I that I recognized and and it was also fearful of was lack of playing background I thought might not allow me to advance in the game and so going back you know almost 25 years it the game fortunately has changed and you know my background was more business was more in the computer world and you know fortunately for me the evolution of the industry changed and and so Gab and, and Walt, those guys gave me opportunities to see, you know, the traditional baseball side of the business. But, you know, ultimately for me, I think my sweet spot was as the game changed, I was able to go with it. Had you not had that encounter and not taken Brent Smith fishing and not gone into baseball, where do you think you'd be today? You know, I don't know. Um I would imagine I would would be doing something where I was working with people, and my guess is I'd probably be involved in some business. But you know, I think back to this this journey that I've been on, and it's it's been you know again very fortuitous in a, in a lot of ways from a timing standpoint. But I've gotten to work with a lot of great people, and they've given me opportunities to to be successful, including someone like Bill Dewitt. At what point did the idea of becoming a general manager first enter your mind? So in 99, I was named scouting director. Um, so at that point, I thought, you know, it was possible. But it wasn't like I was actively pursuing it. Uh, of course, I didn't get named until 07, so you know, <laughs> it took a while. Um, but I, I did interview for my first GM job in 04 with the Reds. Um. Actually, you just 
led me to my next question. You interviewed for GM jobs with the Reds and the Astros. Correct. Uh, before ultimately getting this job. What did you learn from those interview processes that maybe helped you when you finally got to where you are now? You know, I think like when you when you go through that, you, you, you sort of have an understanding of what really your clients want, meaning your ownership. And, you know, both both those organizations were in different spots and, and trying to at the time still win. And, you know, I think given where I was coming from, we were having a lot of success with the Cardinals and you're trying to, to just replicate what you do in one particular organization to try to do it somewhere else. You have to be patient and uh, you may have to go backwards before you can go forward. And sometimes people don't want to hear that. Any executives from outside of baseball that have impacted you throughout your career? Um, yeah, I mean, a good friend of mine is Dave Peacock who ran Anheuser-Busch. Um, Another good friend of mine is a Scott Scott Highmark, who you may not be familiar with, but was a very good basketball player at SLU University and also um, does a little TV and radio for them, but financial advisor and someone that gives me you know good guidance. And uh, Chuck Fandos, who uh, ran a business in St. Louis and is a um, dear friend. But all these gentlemen have had, had an influence on my career. You hired Mike Matheny as the manager, despite his lack of managing experience. But that's occurred more and more, it seems, in recent years. How big of a leap of faith is that to, to bring on somebody to, to lead your team who's never held that position before? I mean, certainly there's some risk. There's no doubt about it. But I think, I think when you understand like your culture and what you have, it's almost more important to, to have someone that you think will fit into that than necessarily looking at just experience. Um, Bill DeWitt always teases me that, that, you know, he values intelligence more than experience. And, you know, that was something that, that I tried to use too in my thinking of, of trying to fill positions. And so I'm not, I don't feel like necessarily of what you've done, but what you're going to do. How important is a GM's relationship with their manager? You know, I've, I've only had two examples, working with Tony La Russa and, of course, Mike Matheny, and, and both were different, but both were very professional. Um, you know, clearly baseball's every day, and, and being able to have open dialogue, transparency, and honesty I think is important. And so if the relationship is, is not strong, some of those characteristics are difficult to have. And um, so in the end, I do think it's important for just true continuity and success. You were the scouting director when Albert Pujols and Yanni Molina were both drafted. At what point in their careers did you realize the type of players they were? Well, Albert was quite quick. <laughs> um, as, as you remember, uh, you know, he, he bursted on the scene. He spent one year in the minor leagues, um, but he started out at a full season A club and ended up at AAA and, and really set you know, his path and, and, and the following spring, if Bobby Bonilla doesn't get hurt, maybe Albert's story is a little different, but I, I think it would only have been just delayed slightly. Right. Um, but in the end, uh, MVP type caliber player from day one. And Yachty. And Yachty, we, we had a, uh, a catching instructor by the name of Dave Ricketts. And I remember him telling me after spending 48 hours with Yachty, that we had a gold glove catcher on our hands. And for him, I always believed that he was so good defensively, he kept getting promoted 
and offensively he just wasn't ever able to catch up at the minor leagues. Subsequently, finally at the big leagues, after maybe a year of a learning curve, he figured that out too. But I think early on we realized we had someone special. About 10 weeks into your tenure as GM, you traded Jim Edmonds to the Padres. Did that feel risky to you, dealing one of the franchise's most popular players as your first sort of major move? Well, if you recall back then, two things were happening. One is Scott Rowland wanted to be traded, and then subsequently uh, Jim Edmonds wanted to be traded. Um, my first goal was actually trying to move Scott Rowland, but was having a hard time finding a fit, and then subsequently um, was able to, to do something with Jim quicker. Yeah, both were very uncomfortable. I think both players were, were you know, franchise-type players, elite players, and when I look back on it, it's not something that I necessarily wanted to do, but it, it was something that, A, they were looking to be moved, and, and B, um, given the dynamics we had on that club, it made sense to, to try to do something. So many nine-figure contracts wind up being busts in this game, or at least a portion of them. How do you assess the Matt Holiday deal, which was the biggest contract in team history at the time? It seems like it's one of the few you know, contracts I, of that size and nature that, that didn't get you I, I think way. both, like, you know, from ownership to Matt to myself, we, we, we take pride that it was a good deal, that it was good for both sides. And, you know, Matt Matt ended up having a, a very special career in St. Louis. I, I, don't, I don't think everybody realizes the impact he had um, locally. Um, what he meant to the city and, and what he meant to our team. But as you point out, most $100 million deals or $200 million deals don't work. And, and for him, you, you know, it, it was one of those where we didn't have to have a nasty divorce. It played out and it worked. You pulled an eight-player deal before the trade deadline in 2011 that helped reshape your roster for your World Series run. How daunting is it to turn over that many players at that point in the season? Probably not a good idea. Um, <laughs> when, when you think back to, to some of the internal dynamics we were dealing with, it, it, it was something that we were just looking at what the arbitrage might look like. And, and ultimately, I don't think we envisioned those moves that necessarily were going to create a world championship team, but in the end they did. And, and so at some level, the aggressive move paid off, and, and, you know, obviously it's hindsight, but it worked. What's it like watching a guy like David Freeze have a postseason like he did in 2011? Magical. Um, when you think about, you know, someone that has 30 days of that type of success, it's, it's, it's really unbelievable. And um, probably one of the hottest players on the planet that, for those 30 days, and clearly he made the most of it. Game six of that World Series will go down as one of the greatest games in history. What's your lasting memory of that game? Well, I remember like thinking, you know, kind of the worst of times, best of times, right? Like uh, how things were, were starting off, and then but how they finished. And you know, the whole sort of mantra of that postseason, I knew Tony was stepping down, and it was always sort of like, well, we've lived for another day. In Game six sort of you know, exclamation point at that. And, and so for us, it was, I remember, you know, that game and that moment, which, you know, obviously I'll never forget, but I just remember seeing Tony after that day, and I go, well, we finally got to one more, and it all ends tomorrow. And that's the last one. That's right. right. There is no more after that. So, um, but I thought that kind of just captivated what it was all about. 
What's more satisfying, getting it right with a big contract player like Holiday or striking gold on a one-year deal with a guy like Lance Berkman? Uh, having long-term success, for sure. If you're enjoying this Mark Feinstein interview, make sure you check out all the great conversations featured in the MLB.com Newsmakers podcast. You'll hear Mark and other MLB.com reporters chat with baseball's brightest stars of today and the past, as well as the game's best broadcasters and writers. You can download MLB.com Newsmakers today on iTunes or wherever else you get your podcasts by searching Newsmakers. Now, back to Mark Feinsand. There are those that believe sabermetrics have become almost more important than traditional scouting. Do you think scouting has become less important to teams around the league, or do you just think that analytics have caught up with it in terms of its importance? Well, I can't speak for 29 other teams. I can just tell you what you know how we think about it, but, you know, if you can't do one without the other, and and so if you're if you're trying to determine what you should weigh more, you're probably wasting time. If if you can find strike that right balance of, of how you think about player evaluations, and you eva- you know you value the analytical world and you you value the scouting world, I, I think that's going to put you in a, a most optimal place for success. But you know, I will say like technology is allowing us to do more and more that maybe even three, five years ago, we weren't able to, to, to measure. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I do feel like it continues to, to let us get smarter on how to make decisions. But when you think about the world scouting, there's some things that you still have to do in Latin America, some things you have to do in the amateur world that the tools you might be using at the major league level or the minor league level don't exist. MLB StatCast has introduced some metrics into the game in the last couple of years. How do you view those, and, and do you think it's changed the way fans and clubs look at, at the game? I think fans are starting to, to understand that you know, more things can be measured, and I think they find that interesting. Um, and I think that's good for baseball, because you, you think about the younger generation right now, they tend to, to like to look at their phones or, or their iPads, and, and if they're able to, to, to read it and see it that way, it might make them more interested in what they're seeing on, on the field. You've generally refused to deal away top prospects for rental players at the deadline. Is it ever tempting, especially when you see what guys like Andrew Miller and Chapman did for the Indians and Cubs last year? You know, I, I, when, when someone asks me that question, is it tempting, I, I don't really know how to answer it because, you know, our model is based on producing talent. So, you know, we're a very pipeline-driven organization, and if you start taking away from that or depleting what you have, it's going to make it very tough for us to have sustained success, um, especially for a rental. So I, I, I don't really take the bait on that one. I, I think we have to stay the course. I mean, obviously, every organization and every processy, if you will, has to evolve and, and grow, but I think it's a real slippery slope for us. Speaking of that, that philosophy, you signed a lot of your players to extensions to keep them in St. Louis, Matt Carpenter, Lance Lynn, Adam Wainwright, Yachty. Uh, you're seeing that more around baseball, teams locking up their players rather than dealing with free agency. Is that, is that the new trend now, the, to, to, to try to not have to deal with free agency because of the way the prices have gone? And not just for you, but I was speaking, have you seen that league-wide? Well, I, I think you know, going back to Cleveland in the late 90s, um, they were probably the first to really take those 
pre-arb or arb years and, and tie up with exchange for a, a few years of free agency. And you know, most recently we did it with Carlos Martinez. But um, you know, I think every team has to sort of decide how they want to look at it. But you know, as much as a team may want to do that, you still need a player that wants to. And, and I think the, the the sort of the arbitrage there is year to year versus you know taking a bigger bite at the apple early for maybe leaving something on the table. So everybody's got to do their own math. We're five plus years removed from Albert Pujols free agency. Looking back, how difficult was it to watch him leave St. Louis? You know, obviously this is one of those hindsight questions. Um, but, you know, he was an iconic player for the Cardinals. Um, it was, you know, arguably an amazing run that when he was with us, on, just on a you know, personal performance standpoint as well as team success. And... You know, in a perfect world, you, you, you'd like to see the player never have to leave. Um, but our game's changed, and it's, it's, it's not the 1950s. It's, it's you know, 2017, and it's a business. And, and so as difficult as it was to see him leave, as difficult as it is to see him not wear a Cardinals uniform, in the industry, you understand it's possible. As a GM when you're in a situation like that, is it tough to separate emotion from business or it is. is that just something you have to train yourself? No, to do? I think like, I think like, like to, to do this job well, you have to separate, but it's hard. I mean, there's always a personal element to, to this business. Um, you know, we're not selling tires. We're, we're dealing with baseball players and baseball players are human. And so you, you get to know these individuals and, and some of them you become friends with. And so there's that, there is that connection or tie. Um, you know, I always try to explain it to people that aren't in the industry if they were working with their best friend and all of a sudden they had to end the relationship, the business relationship. Would that, would that be something they welcomed or would it be a challenge? And most people would find it challenging. Albert's hardly the only guy who's been in that situation. We've seen a lot of examples in recent years. Robinson Cano leaving the Yankees being another one of those kinds. Do you think teams have learned a lesson about paying for past performance versus future performance more than they may have? Well, I, I think the industry as a whole is getting smarter on how they think about it, but you're still seeing deals happen, so it doesn't mean um, teams aren't willing to take that chance. And, and some of these deals that you're referring to are still you know, in the infancy stages of whether they'll be positive or negative. So, you know, passing judgment on them, I don't think would be fair to anybody. I do feel like as, as a whole, each organization needs to decide where they want to, how they want to think about these types of investments. But, you know, for us, it's, it's you know, we, we tend to aggressively try to keep our core in place, but understand that we sometimes have to augment that via trade or free agency. Does it make it more special when you have a guy who does play his whole career in one uniform? Because it is so increasingly rare. I think I think that's what makes it special. It's rare. Uh, what was it like for you to watch the Cubs in the World Series last year? <laughs> you knew that was coming. <laughs> um, you know, I obviously uh, there's a lot made out of our rivalry and and what have you, but you know, I I looked at it as it was a great series. Um, it was, I think, great for baseball that you had two teams that, that hadn't been in the World Series for a while competing. And, you know, as much as uh, I would have preferred to see the St. Louis Cardinals in there, 
I thought it was an entertaining uh, seven games. Some of the players on your team have said there's a chip on their shoulders after missing the playoffs and then watching the Cubs win last year. Do you agree? You know, I don't know what motivates every individual, but, you, you, you know, I, I think I think our team has pride in how they perform, and, and last year didn't go according to plan. So if that gives them extra motivation for success, I'm all for it. What does Dexter Fowler add to your team? Um, I think I would say leadership, energy, enthusiasm, and he's fun. And you know, you think about those traits or characteristics, and it tends to work very well in a, in a clubhouse. And he's someone that is very inclusive. And so, you know, he reaches across the aisle in every direction. And, um, you know, three weeks into this, he, uh, he appears to just be an amazing teammate. You stress the need this winter to prioritize defense and base running for 2017. Do you feel that they're on the right track towards what you were looking for? Yeah, we're sitting here March 7th. It's sure. you know, a week and a half into this. I, I feel like, I do feel like just from a pure athleticism standpoint, we, we have improved. Um, you know, putting Gritch in left, Baller in center, Scott in right, giving Wong an opportunity at second, moving Carp to first. I think those moves maybe seem subtle, but definitely affect how the, the you know, you know, when you think about your DNA of a team has changed. With the season a few weeks away still, what would you say is your, your biggest strength and biggest weakness at this point? Um, biggest strengths of this club, I, I think right now will, will likely be our rotation and and ultimately uh, our everyday lineup. I think uh, the weakness, I don't know if I, I'd say we have a weakness as much as some question marks, but how does the defense Position changes, blend, will it work? And uh, will the athleticism that we're talking about translate into more aggressive base running? People always talk about the competitive balance in baseball and how in football all 32 teams can go to camp and say they have a chance to win. But we've seen in baseball with the Royals winning, and the Cubs obviously are a big market, Royals are a small market. You've seen you know, Miami's won World Series. Do you think that the competitive balance in baseball is as, as good as it's been right now? Yeah, I think, like, look, Every team has a chance, but maybe not on a given year, because some teams may just decide to to invest in pipeline versus payroll, right? And, and so people have that that arbitrage or decision on how they want to position their, their organization. But I think the exciting thing about Major League Baseball is large market versus small market you can build a good product in a small market and have success. How do you, how do you think uh, your views on the game have changed the most from the time you first started in this business to now? Hmm. Well, I think my, 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 the biggest change for me is understanding the, the dynamics of the business and how we make decisions. And I, and I think the, the biggest change from the early 90s to where we are in 2017 is is how we think about compensation. Back then it was what you did, now it's on what you're going to do. You, you serve as a national trustee for the Foundation of Fighting Blindness. How did you get involved with them? Why was that important for you? 
um, I met a father reached out to me, told me a story, has a son, um, Jack Morris, who um, at the time was, was probably seven, eight years old and um, was diagnosed with a, a, a degenerative eye disease and the story was heartbreaking, I don't want to bore you, but it was, uh, they, they had recently painted a boat with um, um, glow-in-the-dark paint, they went into the bathroom to look at it. Dad shows it to Jack, and, and Jack's like, I don't see it. And then Dad realized something's wrong, and then that's when he's diagnosed. But, you know, getting to know the family, getting to know um, young Jack, it, it was just something that I felt like if I could help with, I would. And it's just, it's grown into, you know, a much larger commitment and uh, something that I'm, I'm proud to support. I'll go to the Cubs for one second. Do you look at it as... Do you like the challenge of having a team like that in your division? Well, I would say this: like, like, like when you look at at you know, sort of the last fifteen years of the Cardinals, there's always been some team, right? Milwaukee was strong for a while. Cincinnati was strong. Um, Pittsburgh has been strong. You, you, you're always there's always somebody competitive. I think the difference between the three teams I just mentioned in Chicago is just resources. Right, and you know, we sort of always joke that there's a sleeping giant out there, and it's been awoken. I know, having covered the Yankees as long as I did, when the Red Sox won in '04, it changed the dynamic of the rivalry. It changed the dynamic of, of sort of that whole New York Boston thing. Mm-hmm. The fact that the Cubs broke their streak and, and finally won does that change anything with Cardinals Cubs? Well, as I said, I mean, it's it's it. I think it improves the rivalry from a you know, you know looking on paper, they've they've done it now. They, they can check that box, um, but more importantly, you know it's it's going to be competitive because of of the resources that organization has. Do you feel if, with them having gone as long as they did without winning, it was always they're chasing World Series, but you were one of the teams usually in their way. Do you feel like you're chasing them now? Well, I think that's fair. I mean, obviously they won. Um, I think we finished 17 games behind them last year, so I would say that's chasing. I mean, I would think, like, you know, just from a credibility standpoint, we're still a well-respected organization, but, you know, their most recent success would mean we have some work to do. MLB.tv Premium, the number one live streaming sports service, is celebrating 13 years. Watch every out-of-market regular season game live or on demand in true HD. Real-time highlights, live look-ins, pitch tracking widget, and more. MLB.tv Premium includes a free AtBat 15 subscription. Watch live baseball on over 400 mobile and connected devices. Watch at home, in the office, or on the go every night on every device. Blackout and other restrictions apply. Visit MLB.tv for details.